My guest today on From the Heart has been working as a play-by-play announcer in professional sports for over 40 years and has been the radio voice of the Anaheim Ducks of the National Hockey League since 1999. I first met Steve in 2005 when we came together on a few community events when we both worked in sports in Orange County, California. Steve's originally from St. Louis, Missouri, and his early years included calling professional hockey, basketball, and baseball games all over the country including a stint with the Philadelphia Flyers of the NHL before 1999 eventually coming to be the man for the Ducks, where he's been for the past 21 seasons. Today, Steve finds himself directly impacted like all of us in this coronavirus pandemic. As you know, the NHL, along with just about every other major sport in the world, has come to a complete halt. And in in the Ducks case, in the NHL, there was a little bit more than a month left in the season. We'll get into that and much more please welcome my dear friend, Mr. Steve Carroll. This is Steve Carroll, radio play-by-play voice of the Anaheim Ducks. You're listening to From the Heart with Ed Hart. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ed. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a, it's a new normal. We're working from home and my view is the street in my neighborhood and not uh, looking out at the mountains from my office at Cal State Fullerton. But you know what? There's a lot of perks to this as well. Yeah, there is. Uh, my actual room of work here at my home in uh, Ladera Ranch, California, has papers sprawled all over the floor on the desk trying to uh, prepare for the last 11 games of the regular season. Of course, there is none for the Anaheim Ducks, so I'm spending most of my time uh, doing my wife's wishes, clean up the room. So I'll get that done before we go back to play. There you go. There you go. Yeah, there's a lot of new things that, that we all are, are dealing with and working on. And yeah, your season obviously has come to a and end a little bit sooner than you'd anticipated. Tell me about when you first started kind of getting wind. Were you guys on the road or where were you when you started really getting word that the season might be at least at that point stopping and now we know pretty much ending for, for the Ducks anyway? We were actually at home for a good stretch. We had traveled so much during the month of January and February, Ed. It was kind of nice to be home, something like seven or eight home games in a two- to three-week period. So we were about to embark on an eight-day trip up to Canada, and you just had a sense before our last two games, which were against the Ottawa Senators and the St. Louis Blues, that something might happen whether it be as drastic as it turned out to be, weren't quite sure, but we got the word about two or three hours after the St. Louis game on the 12th of August. And here we are, not knowing what our future is, not knowing if we'll see another regularly scheduled game. I very much doubt so. But uh, for playoff teams, and we will not be one of them this year, I guess they're uh, up in the air as to whether or not there's even going to be a National Hockey League playoffs, when it's going to start. Could it be late April, early May, June, July, August, which some people were talking about? I rather doubt that because they do want to play the entire 2020-21 season, preseason, regular season. So every day you go to the different hockey websites and try and figure out Uh, what they're telling us. Is there hope that we might get to see some more hockey? At this point, I don't think anyone's sure what's going to happen. Are you in regular touch with either people from the league or from the team at this point? Or are you just everybody like like everyone else, wait and see? Yeah, it's kind of wait and see. And of course, when you do the type of work we do, we're constantly looking at newspaper articles, the website, NHL.com. And there's so many terrific writers at this level of professional hockey that you're on all their sites trying to get some insight. Everybody brings a different angle, a different uh, perspective. And uh, right now, it's just a big question mark 
be quite honest with you, and it changes on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Yeah, I think the news changes probably in the two and a half minutes we've been on the air. There's probably been a few changes as well. So, well, let's let's come back to that and maybe wrap a little bit more with kind of what's next. You know, again, a lot of it is up in the air, as you mentioned. Let's go back. I mentioned in the intro that you've been doing this for about 40 years, the last 21 or so with the Ducks. Take us back to little Steve Carroll growing up in Missouri when you kind of made that decision or had that idea that this might be something that you could do with your life? Well, I wish we had three hours because I could talk just about three or four years. (laughs) Well, you know, given the new normal, we just might. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, Honestly, Ed, uh, this might be kind of a funny story to most, but I was never good athletically. So I watched a lot of sports on TV and I would imitate some of the play-by-play announcers that did radio and TV and all the major sports primarily the hockey, baseball, which are two of my favorite uh, sports to broadcast, and then, of course, some football and basketball. I actually, this is a true story, grew up in St. Louis listening to people like Jack Buck, Dan (laughs) Kelly, Bob Starr, who has some California ties out here, Bob Costas. I would lay in my bed at night and do fake play-by-play. I'd do two or three innings of uh, play-by-play before I went to sleep. Uh, some hockey from games that I had just seen. And my mom and dad would come up, are you okay? Are you okay? We heard some noise in here. Well, I'm just <laughs> practicing my play-by-play. And honestly, I did that. So I had a sense that maybe this is something I might pursue. And I was always the guy in high school uh, growing up in St. Louis that answered all the sports questions. People came to me about the different trades, transactions. They knew I'd, I would, uh, you know, pretty up-to-date on everything that was going on. So uh, just had a knack for it. I liked English class. I liked speaking and uh, pursued that particular thing, working some part-time jobs before I went to broadcast school and then on to a small town. And 46 46 years later, Ed, uh, here I am in the National Hockey League. I guess you can call it kind of an interesting story and a dream come true for someone like myself. I was going to say, I, I just jotted the note down, the dream sounds like so from an early year, early on in your life, the dream really was to be a professional broadcaster. What was the ultimate dream? Did you have, is there a favorite sport? I know you've been doing hockey for the Ducks the last 21 years. You've dabbled in obviously in a lot of others. Is there, was there that dream job or that person that you hate? For me growing up, I was going to replace Vin Scully. But <laughs> then little did I know 40 years ago, that Vinny would have been doing it for 67 years, so I'd have been waiting a long time. What about for you? I'm guessing, first of all, that that's kind of a job everyone would uh, like to have, one that lasts that long. You love what you're doing, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, I always was play-by-play and being a big hockey and baseball fan and a kid that actually went to almost every professional sports event while growing up from around age 10, 11, through the time I left St. Louis to move to Iowa in the late 70s to start this career. Uh, I just watched a lot of things on TV. I used to memorize backs of sports cards. I could tell you what number a guy wore in college uh, playing basketball at the lowest level. Uh, that's what I did. I did crazy things like memorize records. Who won the first Indianapolis 500? And I went to almost every Cardinal game and Blues game and just enjoyed being around it, collecting autographs, catching balls and batting practice out the bleachers at Old Bush Stadium. So my passion was that. And to think about the possibility of actually being involved in that after doing it for so long is it's actually hard to believe, to be quite honest yeah. with you. And it wasn't easy. 
but uh, put a lot of effort, persistence into it, and you certainly need that in this line of work. And eventually, it came to fruition. I had a lot of question marks over the years and a lot of ups and downs, but I kept with it, and finally, my dream came true. That's fantastic. So you were probably wanting to replace Jack Buck just the way I was wanting to replace Vin Scully because you grew up listening to him. And I've heard stories of Al Michaels doing the same thing. Al would go up into the upper deck at Dodger Stadium into the far corner with a little tape recorder and kind of like you're talking about. And I did the same thing, get in, the, in that area and just call the game on a tape recorder to practice. So who did you, you, you talked about Jack Buck and Bob Costas and, and a few others. Was there the one that you looked at and you really tried to benchmark and, and compare yourself to as if I could be that guy? Yeah, no question. The two favorite sports of mine, hockey and baseball. Hockey was Dan Kelly hmm. in St. Louis. I listened to him like, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know how you would describe it, but every time he was on the air, I tried to catch him and uh, write down little notes, little sayings, how to describe a certain play. And for baseball, Jack Buck growing up there, uh, Harry Carey was alongside for a while, but I don't think that was that type of personality. Yeah. Jack Buck was more <laughs> straightforward, professional guy. And I just listened almost every night. I'd sit out in the front porch, my uh, home, where I grew up in South St. Louis and just had the radio. And I was the radio guy. I thought that radio was unique. It took a little more work, a little more ability to do that, trying to paint a picture as compared to TV. So I kind of took a love to the uh, aspect of radio. And uh, I just think you're a part of the team every day. You travel with the team. Sometimes there aren't TV telecasts of certain games. So for me, being around a team on an everyday level, being involved with the behind-the-scenes operation inside a professional sports team, no matter what sport it is, is something something special. And you're doing it as a living. You're doing yeah. it not as a – you should fall in love with things like this, Ed, as you know. And uh, so – you know what? Uh, I don't complain too much about uh, money or that. I just love going into work every day. And there's not too many people that can say that. Absolutely. Yeah, you're very, you're one of the lucky ones, that's for sure. So most of us have never been on a team playing or traveled with a major team um, with what you can. And I know that there's the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas rules as well. I get that. But what's that like? And I know from talking with you over the years, it's not something you've ever taken for granted. Tell a little bit about, you know, maybe if there's a story or two or something fun or just something that maybe the typical fan would have no idea about when it comes to traveling with, let's just say, the Ducks or a professional major level team. Well, I have to be honest, it's a lot easier traveling charter than it is commercial. <laughs> yeah, I would <laughs> imagine that's probably true. <laughs> that commercial work, I spent 32 seasons in the minor leagues, as you know. So most yeah. of that was traveling by bus. 12, 13-hour trips in two sports at every single level of both sports. So I do I know what that is it. like. I've done that too. <laughs> yeah, been on it's, a lot of 15-hour bus rides. It's a lot nicer being on a charter, I can tell you that, because you get there quicker. Uh, you get uh, a little bit better food. Hmm. The unfortunate thing for me is uh, here over the last, uh, what, 20 years for the Ducks, I'm usually in the back row of the plane. I don't know if they're trying to tell me something. Or it's just <laughs> the fact that in priority, I'm the least important when you're talking about the players, coaches and trainers, <laughs> things like that. But, That's all right. At least uh, you're there. You're, you're, you're taking off and landing at the same time they are. 
Uh, you're right, you know, and I think just uh, being able to relax, prepare for games, uh, sit and uh, watch a uh, video on your iPhone or whether it be uh, compiling notes, reading all the uh, notes from a team on a given day. And uh, basically, uh, I've been doing this for so long, it's rather a quiet experience and you just want to get there. And uh, I'm a guy that takes care of my health a lot, especially over the last two years. So part of my day when we get in is uh, actually working out a couple hours a day, six days a week. And uh, I think the older you you get the more you're into that so I try to get input from players uh, whether it be trainers wellness experts uh, once in a while I see them down in the workout areas and hey can you uh, give me some insight as to maybe how I should do this better so for me it's all about that getting there safely uh, don't have to worry about the uh, getting off from Des Moines to Denver then going to <laughs> Oklahoma City, things like that which by the way you do at AAA baseball on some upper levels of hockey but this is so much better. Uh, you just can't believe it. Uh, no complaints about anything in regards to that. That's awesome. So you talk about the preparation. You and I have had conversations before. And one of the things that impresses me, I listen to a lot of Ducks hockey. I drive around a lot. And obviously, I listen to you. Love listening to you. A couple of questions for you. Number one, have you ever considered a career as an auctioneer? Because to describe hockey on the radio, you're talking a lot. You're not a. You're not like a talkative guy when we have conversations. You're very thoughtful and you seem to be a thinker more than a speaker but when you get on the radio you're just describing the action a mile a minute and then the follow-up question is how do you pronounce these guys names so quickly how much preparation goes into that I'd say number 16 passes to number 32 he shoots he scores but you're saying names that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce right now well first of all I did try to do some auctioneering was okay <laughs> but not very good uh, because that's even more difficult because you're talking about people you might see once a year, once every two or three years with the different type of events that we do. And I'll, I'll be honest, we do a lot of uh, speaking uh, at schools, uh, different events with sponsors. And I think you just become more relaxed and you just want to have a conversation with people that are maybe envious of what you do for a living. And uh, I always thought if I get to this point, Ed, that uh, you'd probably be nice to people because you were on the other side looking in and I would have given anything sacrificed anything to be doing what I'm doing so you want to be nice to people but that auctioneering is a tough thing as far as uh, the work on describing players I think the uh, European names and uh, the foreign names are a little difficult sometimes you just have to drill it into your head you write down things phonetically and uh, you don't see many Jones and Smith yeah, this in is true anymore yeah that's tough. We have uh, Gibson Miller in Anaheim. I'm very, very fortunate because they see a lot of time playing at goal. So uh, it's just going over it, uh, trying to make sure you say it right and uh, to where you smooth it out and uh, you just do the best you can. I think with the quickness of the game and speed of the game, there wouldn't be one hockey announcer at any level that says sometimes you just kind of slur a word. It comes up quick and you're going, Mm, here's a name and you just got to be a little careful with it. It might have that little slant to it, but hockey's so fast. Sometimes you can get by with doing that. And, uh, nobody really picks it up, but for the most part, you just do the best you can and uh, just try and get them right. Because now the game is uh, a lot of uh, players from Sweden, from Finland, from Russia, and they're all over. So a little bit more prep than maybe uh, during the days, 20, 25 years ago. Sure. Yeah, you've been doing it a long time, so certainly you have some credibility. And I heard Vin Scully tell a story right after he retired. I may have shared this with you when we had coffee together a while back. 
he said he had to read, you know, the little four by six note card they put in front of you to read commercials. Like instead of commercial, you know, maybe there's a, a pitching change in baseball or something, or maybe you have a brief timeout or something. You do a commercial read, and I know you guys do that. With Vinny, he talked about a read that he had for, I think it was Wonder Bread. And uh, he says, the line I'm supposed to read is always ask for the best in bread, Wonder Bread. He goes, no, I know I said, always ask for the breast in bed. <laughs> he goes, but I've been doing this about 60 years at that point in my career. And my thought was, okay, I can go back and fix it. Or maybe the audience will realize, hey, Vinny's been doing this a long time. I probably heard it wrong. And so he decided to just yeah. move past it and not even, not even touch on it. So that's one that stuck with me. Did you ever have any of those moments where you just knew that you slipped or you said something and you just, you know what, I got to just move because the action is so fast. Yeah, you're right. And it's probably best to do what he did. Just kind of move yeah. on because you don't know how many people are out there, how close they're listening. And, you know, if there's one that's really sticks out to you and you know you did it wrong, you might just go out there and admit your mistake or redo it again, sure. uh, whether it's the guy's name. And, hey, be honest, because uh, nobody's perfect, especially doing this kind of work, because it's live most of the time. And you want to be honest with the people and uh, not make it sound like you're trying to escape a mistake. Uh, sure. Admit it. and on. That applies to anything in life too, not just getting on the air. So Steve, was there a moment when you just thought to yourself, I know you, you, you are, I, when I think of you and I've gotten to know you over the last 15 years or so, gratitude comes to mind quickly. And I know that you've expressed even here just in the last few minutes and in previous conversations we've had about how grateful you are that you get to do what you do. But was there ever a moment or has there, and that has to have happened, I'm sure, when you've just thought, you can remember that second where you thought, not just I can't believe that I get to do this for a living, because I, I get that you feel that every night. But was there ever a moment where you thought, I've made it? This is this is what I dreamt about as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh probably uh when I got to the minor league level, as I told you, I spent so many years there. And for me, that was even a top of the line thrill. If I had to work in the minor leagues all my life, mm -hmm. so be it. I was doing something that I love. I was around two sports and all the great people in it at every level. And it was also a learning experience. And all I ever asked for, Ed, I asked God, I said, you know, I just need one chance. So I get a chance. It doesn't work out. And I'm out of work for about four years of a five-year period where I actually gave up, to be honest with you. I did that three times during this journey up to where I'm at. And I gave up, and uh, I was about ready to start doing something else. And all of a sudden, somebody's put in my path that talks to me, and it turns out to be a lead into a new position, which I had to actually work for. But people, you know, one thing I find out, Ed, is sometimes people are put in your path, and you have to go through the adversity, go through the tough times to appreciate all the good times. and. I did that on three occasions, and my background is, quite honestly, I never depended on anybody to get me a job or talk. I tried to sell myself in four different jobs that I had. That way I earned it if it happened, but I, but I think it showed that uh, I was very interested. I was passionate about my job. I had the experience. When you uh, spend money on a plane flight to a city to sell yourself and you haven't been offered any kind of job or you make phone calls, sacrifice, do something for somebody, it comes back at you. And uh, I'm just, uh, again, like you said, grateful. But I think 
again, to follow up on the question you asked me, uh, I don't think there's any guarantees uh, in this kind of work. Uh, things change so rapidly. When you can get into a situation like I have in a great market, great weather, and after you've struggled for about uh, 32 years, and it's all been struggling. You don't make sure. a lot of money in the minor leagues. I guarantee you, one, one year in Nashville, I had to work six jobs to make $60,000. <laughs> six jobs, and wow. some were paid 15000 So you work, you do as much as you can. And I think all you hope for is if you put in the time and the effort that you get the one opportunity. I did. It didn't work out. It was a political situation. I'm out of work. And what you do is you find out more about yourself, Ed, because what I did was I spent some, some time selling theater tickets. I worked selling billboards at a hockey rink. I worked at an insurance company for two years. I was a janitor at my high school for a full year during unemployment time. And that was when I was in my uh, 20s. Yeah. And so you adjust to every situation. And I think the day will come when I know this is it or maybe it's time to move on but uh i try to involve myself to be honest with you in other projects other things and uh when the time comes and hopefully it's not for another five to ten years i'd like to work that long out here doing something i love that i have some experience where i can at least help some people once this part of my life is over with that's awesome yeah and that's great i know i see you out in the community doing things we talked earlier that you do a lot of things you do a lot of events if there's a ducks event you're probably there. You're probably not just there. You're probably speaking or you're shaking hands. Well, you can't shake hands now, but you're doing the <laughs> elbow touch or the pat on the heart to people and so forth. Um, when you're out in the community, what is, I know that you love that aspect of the job because we have talked about it. What is it about that, that that attracts you to it? Other than the fact that I don't even know that you do it because it's in your contract. I get that you do it because you love it. What is it about it that you love? Well, there's a lot of unfortunate people around. Uh, we're pretty lucky. Uh, I have my health for the most part. Uh, I'm doing something that I love. And if you can make a difference, this is my philosophy, Ed, if you can make a difference in one person's life in a particular instance, either by maybe uh, being a part of a family, being at a game, sending down a souvenir, going up, talking to a young kid, because basically I'm one of those people. I'm a fan. I'm a regular guy that grew up worshiping what I'm doing now and to have the opportunity I feel like I've been put in this spot where maybe I can make a difference maybe I can be somewhere where I'm giving a talk that someone can hear maybe it's a young kid who has issues at home or something's not going right he hears something that I say he can take that and never forget it and that's that's what I've done especially over the last 15 to 20 years if I hear somebody talk I'll write down a note and maybe use it myself somewhere else. I, I don't take credit for it. I actually tell the people who I heard that from, to be quite honest with you. But uh, it's, it's a learning experience, life changes. There's so many things out there. And uh, there's so, so many people that are struggling. You know, there's people that are sick, have diseases. And uh, I spent two or three years going into a children's hospital in Nashville. And I was around a lot of people that had some bad things, some young kids, and it affected me in such a big way that if you can at least go in for even three or four minutes and spend some time letting them know, whether it be a kid or a growing up, their parents, that you care, it makes a big difference. It makes an impact and maybe gives them a little bit of brightness in what's been a tough life or a tough situation they're going through. And you know what? That's all, that's all I ask for is to maybe go in and 
be around somebody that's uh, needing a kind word or a, a piece of advice. And quite honestly, I get more out of that than I do what I do for a living because uh, I've been around so much of it, especially over the last 10, 12 years. Life is short. And yep. uh, I think we need to love people. There's not enough love in the world. And if you can make an impact just on one or two people, I think you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's excellent. So that's a perfect transition into where I wanted to go next. We talked uh, before we came on the air here and in a previous conversation that you're pretty heavily involved in, in a ministry in the, in the prisons. Can you talk about how that started? Because everything you just talked about, I get that that's part of why you do that making a difference in young people's lives, people who have had a lot less fortune than you have. What drew you to that initially? And tell us a little bit about why you love that so much. I don't know. I just got a feeling I have from the first day I was over there. Uh, I, I'll try to make a long story sharp. This is pretty amazing. This is when you feel like you're touched by something. And I just happened to be at a church service. So I attend uh, Saddleback Church. Uh, a few years ago, and I heard this guy talk that was a head of a prison ministry, a former prisoner, and it was a fascinating story. It just came out of the clear blue sky, and that particular day, I read about a pastor's conference, a Celebrate Recovery conference coming up at the church, and I, I told my wife, I said, you know what? I need to go there. And I think at that time in my life, which was about four or five years ago, you start getting older, you wonder what you can do to make a difference, and uh, I went to the conference. And I run into this guy, his name's Danny Duchesne, at the conference. And I'm sitting at a table before the next session. And this is what you call something from up above. I, I know it's from above because of how it happened. But I sat there and I recognized this guy. I was with another uh, guy that was sort of uh, an assistant pastor at a church up uh, in Northern California. And I said, I said to him, I said, I know this guy. There were two seats available in the whole area. And it was Danny and his wife. And I, I just kept telling him, I said, I know this guy from somewhere. And he tells me his name. And I said, you're the guy that was up giving the talk last week, weren't you? I said, it was fascinating. The next session's about to start. I get up and I had this most unbelievable feeling. And I can't explain it to you. I get really nervous. I get uh, really teary-eyed about it, which I am now. And I told this guy I was with, they says, you know what? I'm supposed to go into the prison ministry. I said, I can't tell you why. I don't know why I sat here and I went up and talked to his wife. I said, you know, you're going to think I'm, I'm kind of crazy or a nut, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm no, supposed no. to talk to your husband about this. The wheels in motion uh, got back to me the next day, went through all kind of training. He showed up at a training, gave up what he had to do to spend a whole afternoon with me. Said he knew that I was supposed to do this too. And I'm in training for five, six months. I'm in a prison within that amount of time talking to guys. And I've been involved in four or five actually uh, of uh, teaching classes, spending time over there. And Ed, I absolutely love it. I'm supposed to be there. There's been some very interesting moments. And uh, I, I just have to tell you this story. Yeah, absolutely. It's not really funny. But uh, the first night I was over there. Is this Chino? This is uh, over at the uh, California Re Rehabilitation Center over in Norco. Oh, okay. But I've been to the one in right off, uh, you know, the 91 yeah. and the 15. Yep. And I've been in various prisons and uh, various classes, but I walked in there and they introduced me and they wanted me to go sit at a table and I had no idea what the class was about. This guy comes up to me and he says, what are you doing here? He says, 
you're a sports announcer, huh? What do you know about what you're doing here? Hmm. And I didn't know what to say. And that was the proving point for me because I told him, I said, you know what? You're right. I said, I don't even know if I want to do this, but somehow I'm supposed to be here. I have a lot of life experiences. And uh, if you guys give me a chance, I don't know if this is going to work out. I might know something by the end of the night. Maybe I can say something that will help you or do something. He goes, okay. And everybody at the table shook my hands. By the end of the night there, I went outside. Guy stopped me and said, are you going to be one of these guys that comes here once and doesn't show up again? And I felt something sitting there talking, holding a conversation with, I think there was like 12 guys at the table. They all had different things. And I told the guy, yeah, I'll be here. And when I walked outside the prison, I was crying. Mm. I went into my car, I called my wife, and of course, she didn't want me to go there. She was scared that something was going to happen. Sure. And uh, she said, are you okay? Are you okay? I said, I'm fine. She goes, you're crying. Did somebody hurt you? Did you get in trouble over there? <laughs> I, said, I said, no, but I need a half an hour, hour to just figure out what happened here, and I need to get away. I'll call you later. And I just broke down, and I knew at that time, and all of a sudden, I'm into it. I've spent some time out in the yards speaking in uh, front of uh, a Sunday service. And it's, it's been absolutely amazing. And I feel like there's some person out there, there's some that I can have a, an impact on. And I consider myself, my situation, even if I have a bad day, nothing even near some of the people that I met and the issues facing them. But if I can help one person, one person when they get out then i've done my job yeah thank you for sharing that i had an opportunity probably oh i don't know six to eight years ago briefly i spent about two years off and on going into the chino men's prison in a similar situation and um it was life-changing and i think for me some of the observations that i had i went in one or two nights a week typically it was a wednesday night kind of bible study and then a sunday afternoon or evening church service and I noticed that these men just really wanted to be listened to. They, they looked up to, after, you know, same thing, I had same questions, you know, are you just going to be a fly-by-night guy once here once and I'm never going to see you again? And a lot of times I didn't see the same guys over and over, especially on Sundays. But I did notice that there was a, a common theme and they were just starving for positive male role models. And my guess is that that's a big deal of why you've been able to make a difference. Yeah. And, and you know what, Ed, uh, it's basic stuff too, like the importance of fathers relationship right. with a mom, the, the different aspects of life, uh, your first 20 years, your middle 20 years, and just what you can do to, uh, be a man of authentic manhood. And, uh, you know, also just, uh, responsibility, responsible thinking on what these guys need to do when they leave. And I've been around some people that have done some pretty bad things, but you know what? Uh, by the end of the lesson, whether it's a nine-week course or whatever, you form kind of this feel form, and you're supposed to love everybody. That's what it says. Yep, absolutely. Regardless of the situation, and it's tough to do sometimes, even at work, to be honest with you. But uh, you do that, you give it back, and maybe you can uh, play just even a small part in someone's life. And it, I'll be honest with you, it's probably something I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. If when I get into my 70s, 80s, I'm still able to walk around and get over there. But that's something sure. that I really have. How does your, so your faith obviously plays a huge part of your life. You just mentioned that it's something you're going to do well beyond retirement. 
how does your faith tie into your career now? I mean, I know you're on the road, you're traveling, you probably see a lot of things that you are really excited to see. And you probably see a few things you're not so excited to see when you travel. Um, talk a little bit about how you demonstrate or exercise your faith when you're traveling. I know that's tough. I've traveled for business. I've traveled in sports. Um, talk a little bit about your experiences that you've encountered, or maybe if there's an experience or two where you've, you've felt that kind of I'm in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing sort of moment. Well, there's been a lot of people put in my path over the years, and I know why now I didn't at the time. But uh, actually, I'm a pretty quiet guy, except when I'm around maybe a Tuesday night ministry class, which I attend. Uh, and uh, I think it's played a huge part. I think sometimes your priorities change. And uh, back in the early 80s, when I first started doing AAA baseball, I needed to maybe make a couple of changes. Not that I wasn't a good person, but your priorities get lost in the shuffle in this kind of work, if you know what I mean. Sure. And uh, I uh, made some commitments and uh, was around a lot of great people, pastors in five or six different uh, states, did a lot of work uh, with people that are going through some tough times and uh, just kind of get straightened out if you know what I mean as far as thinking putting God first family career in the proper order where maybe and this I've run into a lot of people over the years that do this kind of thing for a living you know, athletes uh, different walks of life that you're so involved in your uh, work that you forget about some of the important things like family and uh, different things and then uh, sometimes 30 40 years pass and all of a sudden you're going boy, I missed all that time. And uh, if there is a positive, what we're going through now, it's spending time with family. Most of mine is gone. So I think about the times I could have spent when I was traveling. And uh, I think it's so important these days in particular, because you always have them. And even if you're going through some tough times with family, you're always put in the situations where there's somebody you can help. And uh, I, I would just tell you one story when my faith really became very, very important is when I got mugged out near uh, Isle High Stadium in Denver in 1983. And uh, I had a gun put to my head and uh, about three guys said that I was dead. They were going to kill me. Oh. And uh, laying down on the ground, coming back from a restaurant, minding my own business late at night, which probably was a mistake and probably the only time I ever did that. Usually I'm around people. But at the time, uh, maybe priorities were a little out of place. And uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. I heard this shot, thought it was a shot, and got hit over the head with a shotgun. And uh, my life changed for a long time after that, going to church uh, in Iowa and Alabama and Tennessee, being around great people. And there's a guy named Joe Carter, World Series hero. Yep, Toronto Blue Jays. Jays. He was on our team in AAA in Des Moines, and he took me under his uh, wraps and he said, I want you to come and spend some time at a church in Wichita where he was a great collegiate athlete uh, playing a number of sports. And I needed it at the time. Uh, I had lost a lot of money. And I think the good Lord said, we need to put some money in your wallet because maybe they won't do things and finish off what they told you they were going to do. So we were on the beginning of a road trip at about 400 bucks for a three-week trip, which doesn't go a long way at that level, but that's sure. what we were making. But yeah. hey, here, take the money, do whatever you want. And I turned and I got hit. And uh, I, I just remember one thing. I know it was one o'clock in the morning when I woke up. It was uh, about 7.38 because I was still on the alley. I was cloaked in blood, walked to the restaurant, 
I walked to the restaurant area at the hotel, the Holiday Inn, right outside Mile High Stadium, and uh, ended up at the police station, ended up at the hospital, getting a lot of stitches, and for the first two or three weeks, uh, wasn't too good. Didn't want to talk to anybody, and I thought, why is this happening to me? I haven't done anything wrong, but I think sometimes you need a little wake-up call. Not that you're a bad person, but get the priorities back in order. And the next 10, 12 years was when I really gained a lot of faith and attended a lot of things and uh, spoke. And uh, it went, I, here, here's the funny thing, Ed. Uh, I was Catholic growing up. Uh, I went to a Nazarene church for 10 years. I went to a Baptist church wherever I was in a city. If I couldn't find one place because I traveled so much, I just went and just sat there and said some prayers and said, hey, you got me. You got my attention. This yeah. is a priority. Not to say it stays that way every day. You know, when we're sure. in this line of work, you lose track of priorities. You don't dedicate your time that you should every day to this. But it was the starting point, and that's where all the prayers and uh, the faith began. And uh, I don't know if anyone has 100% faith every single minute of the day, but uh, I'm getting up there. And my wife's I've never met that up. person. No. So, uh yeah. You know, you had to be there probably to experience everything, but uh, God put some uh, people in my life even later on in Nashville and Louisiana, the areas where I worked. And I know they were there for a reason. And I know that they were a part of this overall plan that he has for me. Yeah, and you were in your, if my math is right, you were probably in your late 20s. We typically think we're pretty invincible at that age. And uh, fortunately for most of us, we don't need to be, I mean, you've heard the old saying, we need to be knocked over the head. Well, you literally were, unfortunately. But uh, fortunately for most of us, we don't have to be knocked over the head literally to to wake up, but you did. I, can, I would imagine that that put some things in perspective for you. So, no question. yeah, no, go ahead. No, that's, uh, it's a changer. And, uh, you know, and then the other part of it, Ed, is you're put with different people in different situations, whether it be family, whether it be this uh, prison fellowship I'm involved in, whether it's visiting uh, sick kids in hospitals and you wonder why did this happen to them? They don't deserve it. And you just get a real feel from just everything, how it works. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be the one that, makes the decisions for me. I want the guy up above to do that because sure. uh, the decisions that he brings down to you, if you pay attention and listen, hmm. are the right ones and it keeps you out of a lot of trouble. I can assure you that. So I didn't give you any heads up on this question. The last couple of questions I did, but the one that I'm going to call my third potentially to last question, if a book was written about, and maybe there has been one, but I, I don't know about it. If a book was written about Steve Carroll's life, do you have a uh, a thought of what maybe that title would be or what would be the underlying theme that you would hope that people would take away from a book written about you, whether you wrote it yourself or someone else did? Well, if it's a career book on broadcasting, did everything he possibly could. And that's selling myself, paying my dues, never a guarantee and uh, not believing. So I, I don't know how you would put that in a particular phrase, but mm-hmm. uh, here's one for you. All right. Miracles, miracles do happen. No, I thought you were going to say miracle I, on ice, and I was going to say that's already taken, Steve. Sorry. Oh, it is? Okay. Uh, <laughs> miracles on uh, ice, miracle on ice, but miracles do happen. I like that. That's true. Uh, yeah. I can't skate, by the way. So it'd be a miracle if I could even stand up on them, to be honest with you. <laughs> but uh, I would, uh, boy, that, that's a tough question, but. Uh, Maybe thank you. 
There you go. I like that. See, that goes back to my point. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to my point early on in this discussion about gratitude. I've known you for 15 years and, and uh, there are a lot of people who are in the public eye who do what you do or other positions potentially in sports and may or may not have a big ego. And that's not a way I would describe you at all. I've always described you as very humble and uh, full of gratitude. That's probably why you're okay talking to some schmuck like me. Oh, let me no. Let me, tell, let me tell the listeners the times, and we, we need to have more times. There's no doubt about that. I agree with that. Stuff, but uh, I've learned everything uh, by being around people like yourself. Because you're good quality people. You have uh, the Lord first, and you say things that people listen to and are helpful. And I've talked to a few people that have been uh, helped by what you do. So uh, you're a good person, and uh, I'm uh, very uh, – very humbled to uh, call you a friend and uh, you know, you're the type of people I like hanging around and uh, hopefully we can do it more often here. Uh, maybe we can this summer because uh, I'm not real busy right now. <laughs> all right. Well, and if I ever get let out of my house, well, third, first of all, thank you for that. And apparently the check I sent you cash. So thanks for saying the nice things about me there. Yeah, it's mutual. That's what friendship is. Friendship is mutual respect. So young kids coming up right now, male or female who, you know, maybe 16, 17, 18 years old. Let's just take it back to your hometown. Let's say there's a 17-year-old young lady or a young man that's has the dream of going into broadcasting. What advice would you give them? What uh, what would you tell them not to do? And what would you tell them that they should do? Well, first of all, I'd say get as much experience as you can. Pay your dues, you know. Yeah. Hey, you know what? At least you're doing something you love. It might not be uh, exactly what you're looking for, but I've always believed, Ed, that uh, if you work hard and treat people fine, and here's a big phrase, and it goes in my life, don't burn any bridges. Because you. you know that you're going to need somebody down the line, regardless of the business. And quite honestly, there have been two or three people, two or three people that uh, I've called on for just, can I use you as a reference? Not particularly to make a call. Most of them did anyway, but it helps. And the fact that you did your thing, whether you weren't happy at the end or you wanted to move on, whatever it is, you know, zip it, move on, think about the great opportunity you had, get a good tape if you like the uh, speaking part of it. And here's the other thing. I got a lot of experience doing sales work, marketing, PR, game night operations. So I figured if I ever lose my voice or something happens, guess what? I can still stay in sports, maybe find a job. Maybe it is yeah. a career job in the front office, but I've got all that experience. In fact, I've even been the mascot for three days and <laughs> did, took the nice. tarp off the field at Sec Taylor Stadium in Des Moines. So I can do that too. And I love being around people. And uh, so get as much experience as you can because every little bit you get is going to help Phil going to be helpful come that job you're looking for. And don't give up. Don't right. give up. But there you go. I think you'll know. I think you'll know when you've uh, experienced everything you could possibly do. And it's happened to me twice. Again, I've been out of work for a total of four and a half to five years after age 35 with jobs, with politics, with, the back seven. I'm just telling you, Ed, there's been so much I've been around that nothing surprises me or affects me anymore. But you have to move on. And if you give up, you'll never know. I didn't. Did a lot of sacrificing and uh, it paid off in a strange way. It was not your usual path to get there. But hey, 
I got here and uh, I worked hard. So maybe those people were put in my path as a way to say, hey, you've done what you needed to do. And now this guy is going to help you or be a kind of a, a helpful assistant by giving you some information on a job. And that's exactly what's happened to me the uh, last 10, 15 years. That's awesome. I've had a lot of young people. I have an opportunity, as you know, to to do a little teaching in the sports management uh, business in a local university here. And one of the things that I always tell my students, and I think I'm hearing you say the same thing, is always say yes. They ask you to go drag the field, say yes. They ask you to run the computer for an event that's not your normal event, say yes. They ask you to wrap a hot dog, say yes, because they're, those are the people that are going to get the breaks. And obviously six jobs <laughs> to make $60,000 in a year. You said yes a lot more than you probably wanted to. And, and I get that you weren't even just doing it for the money, but you were doing it because that's just the way you are. So Steve, let me ask you yeah. what, what hey, yeah, so wrap up here. I'll ask you two more questions and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it reminds me uh, when I was out of work after I lost the job in Philadelphia, my first NHL job, that was my dream job. They went through three radio guys in three years, which kind of gives you a signal that uh, it was difficult. I'll just yeah. leave that. And, uh, I was out of work. I tried to find the little part-time jobs like selling billboard advertising at a rink, you know, things like that, working in an insurance company, those type of things. But uh, I, was, I was at a no return point in my life. I called my parents. They said, well, you do what you got to do. You love it. And because of the connections I had made and treated people the way they should be, I made a call to a friend of mine and he offered me a job for $500 a month for group sales mm -hmm. down in New Orleans. Well, guess what? I drove my car, started there after I had lost my dream job thinking nobody thinks I'm any good. My tape probably isn't good. They didn't like me. All these things are running through it. And I'm sitting by myself for a year and a half in Philly, not knowing what I'm doing. And that job led to being a part uh, ground floor of an East Coast Hockey League team. I got tremendous experience, did a football show with the Saints. I met my wife a month and a half before I got this job in California. So guess what? Wow. It started at 500 a month, but it turned out to be pretty good. There were some other plans he had for me and Absolutely. It getting this job. So it, it happens. Fantastic. So fill in the blank on this sentence. When my broadcasting career is over, uh, I just want to be a part of uh, something that's uh, there where I can help people. And uh, it might not be in California. It might be somewhere else. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing something. Um, I'll be five years away from 70. And uh, I'm not going to be a guy that sits around. I guarantee you that. Yeah. If I have to give a talk every day. And uh, mm. I've always thought that that's important. That, you know what? Somebody asks you to do something. You know what? Uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but uh, I don't need to be paid for everything. I've got to uh, do it because good things happen when you're nice to people. And I've seen that along the way. But uh, you know, it'd be nice to be able to do something where you're uh, helpful and uh, Lord up above has something to do with it. And uh, you're rewarded after life, correct? Yep. If you walked out of that office you're sitting in right now and Rhonda, your beautiful wife, walked in and I asked her to tell me a little bit about Steve. Not what do you think she would say, but what do you hope she would say? Uh, Hopefully those are the two of the same thing. Yeah, we love each other. He's worked extremely hard. And, uh, you know, this was meant to be. And I'll tell you, I had this for another story, but uh, <laughs> the way I met her 
it was five seconds away from not happening. So, I mean, there's something to this. And uh, I was meant to be with her. And we have a mentally retarded child down in a home yeah. in Louisiana. She's been through a lot of physical things of late. And uh, I'm supposed to be with her. You know, that's a priority. And uh, it's worked out pretty well over the last 18 years. I don't think she's a big sports fan. But uh, <laughs> she worked hard to get us where we're at. This that's probably good in a way. And uh, you know what? And you can leave it at work. You know what? It is. And quite honestly, I have to tell you this, this last week or so has been nice kind of getting away from a grind where we've had a tough schedule for three months. I was exhausted. Yeah. I'm home just paying attention to more important things, getting taxes ready, things like that. And, you know, who knows what the future holds? I'm going to just sit here and uh, enjoy her company and uh, enjoy the two dogs we have and we'll let everything else play out. And hopefully it's good for all of us. Well, not only is the season over, but uh, you don't get to go anywhere now either. So that's there's, there's definitely a silver lining in this too. So I told you earlier today when we spoke, the last question I'm going to ask you, I gave you a little bit of a heads up, but uh, as I ask all my guests, because the title of the podcast, as you know, is called From the Heart. And really my goal with every interview is to get into the heart of the person and why they do what they do. And I think we've effectively done that today. But I'll wrap up by simply asking you simply, Steve, what's in your heart? Oh, boy. Heart, uh, God first, helping people, just being a good steward and uh, doing the right things. And uh, I'm happy with that because I've done a lot of good things that I thought was never possible. And maybe I can relay that on to somebody. And uh, that's 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 really, uh, Ed, what I... What I really care about right now, I'm getting older, and maybe I can be a voice of some wisdom or some thought to somebody and be helpful. And if that's the case, well, I've done my job. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. You're a good man and a great friend. And uh, I'm very excited to uh, talk to you again soon, face to face, not just computer to computer. And uh, I know that our listeners are going to really enjoy this opportunity that they'll have to listen to you. And uh, again, thank you so much. Okay, well, thanks to you and keep up the good work. This is helping a lot of people, uh, Ed, and I think you know that. But uh, from the outside looking on, this is a great thing you're doing. Thank you.